In this brief little vignette, we have four main characters. First, there are those who, in the story, brought children to Jesus. Uh, these people were likely parents and older siblings, you know, people who loved each one of these children. And what they wanted was for this famous rabbi named Jesus, who'd made a name for himself in that region, to bless the children. Uh, they wanted a rabbinical blessing, a rabbinical touch for their kids. The second characters are the disciples of Jesus. Now, in this whole passage, it becomes clear they had a lesson to learn. They thought they knew all about the kingdom of God. They thought they knew who was in, who was out, and who Jesus most certainly should not be bothered by. And though they didn't understand Jesus' coming cross, they could tell that something was weighing on Jesus' mind. So that's likely part of the reason why they kept the children away. They wanted Jesus to have his space during this stressful moment. And these men needed to relearn the kingdom and hear Jesus' words. Third, we have the children themselves. You know, they were innocent bystanders to this whole episode, but Jesus ended up taking them in his arms and blessing them. Now, the word for children that Mark uses is a word that could indicate babies all the way up to preteens. And later, Jesus is going to hold them in his arms, so they were likely on the younger side of things. Now, we don't know what happened to these children after this episode, but hey, Jesus blessed them. He put his hands upon them and pronounced a blessing on their lives. I'm sure great things unfolded for them in the years to come. And then, of course, fourth and finally, there's Jesus himself. You know, he'd already told his disciples back in chapter 9 to receive people like children in his name. And he warned them that millstones awaited those who stumbled people like children. And Jesus loved children. You know, what you get mad about says a lot about you. And in this passage, Jesus becomes indignant when his disciples kept him from the children. And in this passage, there is one attribute in particular that Jesus saw in children that he felt was exemplary and required to get into the kingdom. Okay, the whole episode, we know it is a moving episode, you know, because in it we see the Jesus that we know. We know that Jesus is gentle and loving and kind and accepts people with open arms. And when we see him in this story holding the children, blessing them, angry that people are kept from him, that's the Jesus that we know and love. Okay, but how should this story impact us today, in 2020? What attitudes could shift inside of our hearts? How should we think of the youngest of generations? What kind of people enjoy God's kingdom? And how can we receive this kingdom that Mark talks about today? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, we should help the next generation get to Jesus. We should help the next generation get to Jesus. It says in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. You see, Jesus quickly rebuked the disciples' rebuke. They stood outside the house, those disciples, policing who went in the house to see Jesus. They knew that Jesus was the king of the kingdom, but they didn't yet understand the nature of that kingdom. So they kept this important man, Jesus, protected from little people of no consequence in their estimation. Now there are two parts to Jesus's rebuke, and each one shows us that we should help the next generation get to Christ. First, he says, they must let the children come to him. Second, they must not hinder them from coming to him. Now, both of them help us understand what the Lord wants. Don't hinder them, but instead help facilitate them coming to me. Now, I mentioned this in a recent sermon, but children in that society were not highly regarded. Kids were not worshipped in that ancient culture. Um, and many times they weren't even properly respected. Instead, they were overlooked until they got to adulthood. Their value was tied to what they produced on the one hand and their family line, their father's name on the other hand. So the disciples, they did what they needed to keep the children from Jesus. You know, to them, these kids weren't important and valuable. Uh, they weren't enough to visit Jesus. But of course, we know that they should not have hindered these children. Now, we might look at this story and think that we have, in our society, gotten it right when it comes to children. But our society still harms kids in its own way. Ours is a society utterly confused about how to handle children. We are full of paradoxes. You know, on the one hand, we applaud raids on human trafficking and the rescue of children enslaved by these programs. We applaud when these evil deeds are put to a stop. On the other hand, we support entire industries which aim at clothing, fashioning, and shaping youth into sensual and provocative people. On the one hand, we create marvelous opportunities for disadvantaged or disabled children. On the other hand, millions of preborn babies are killed just because they weren't desired while they were still in the womb. On the one hand, we protect children who are abused believing that they're not old enough to give their consent to the kinds of things being done to them. On the other hand, our society believes that our littlest children are old enough to decide their gender and receive hormone therapy. On the one hand, we were outraged at Harvey Weinstein's exploitation of young women, but two weeks before his arrest, our society celebrated the life of Hugh Hefner, who had passed away, a man who spent his life exploiting women. You see, we're a nation of contradictions when it comes to our young, when it comes to our children. 
And all these harmful practices and more are demonically designed to keep children from the Lord. But we should not think of our society as the only hindrance to the young. Jesus' disciples in this story were the ones that got in the way. And modern disciples must make sure not to put roadblocks in the way of the next generation. You see, children, children are helped when the church models genuine Christianity. When we are, as a church, spiritually alive, when our homes are saturated with the gospel, the word, prayer, and grace, our children are evangelized, discipled, strengthened, and empowered. But legalism often destroys evangelism. Hypocrisy dilutes the message of the word. And shallow instruction makes our children vulnerable to lies. In a sense, every mature Christian can see themselves in a parental way. You know, you might be married or unmarried, with children or without children, as you watch or listen to this teaching, but every mature believer can be a parent. Every consecrated Christian is an example for others to follow. Recently, a friend of mine came to her first live church gathering since the beginning of this COVID crisis. Her and her husband had been, of course, engaging online, but they decided to come to one of the gatherings on Sunday at Calvary. Her and her husband, they are great people, godly people. They've modeled their Christianity very well through their family and through their work in this community for many years now. And when she talked with me after the service, she said it was so great to be there in person because of all the people that she got to see. And that is such a true statement. But I told her that the gathering is also a chance for her and her husband to be seen. People younger than them need models of solid, biblical, loving believers. We are building our vision of the good life all the time. And corporate worship is one way that we build that vision, even if subconsciously. You see, we look around as we're worshiping and we see what Christianity looks like. And to see this godly couple married for decades, honoring God with their work and family, their full lives and devotion to him, holding their hands high, praising Jesus, it's an inspiration, more than an inspiration. It's a vision of where many people need to go. It's one reason I don't bristle at the thought of having children with us in our live gatherings on Sundays. You know, I think God is working in their lives right now, building their vision of the good life with Christ as we all worship God together. By the way, as I talk about this, you know, wanting to be a blessing to the next generation, minister to the next generation, not stumble, but help disciple the next generation, you might sense a desire in your own heart to impact the next generation for Christ. Maybe it's your own son or daughter. Maybe it's teenagers. Maybe it's 
college students or young adults know this. They are a group of people full of questions. And you must give thoughtful, nuanced answers. Not platitudes, but thoughtful responses. This is sometimes hard to do because they live and have grown up in an upside down morality. And their world promotes it to them. So if you want to reach them, one thing you have to do is learn and listen and ask questions. For this, particularly in light of this study, I asked my good friend, Pastor Matt Kaler, to recommend some resources for you that might help you grow in knowledge so that you could better be equipped to minister to the next generation. All of them that he's recommending are free for you to be able to access. And they're listed inside my sermon notes for this teaching. So if you just go to nateholdridge.com, you can access this teaching and see that link there. And I'd encourage you to be a person that reads, studies, listen, pray, and grow. All right, so that's the first thing that I wanted to point out to you. Number one, we should help the next generation get to Jesus. Now, before we move on in the study today, I do want to mention to you the timing of this whole event in Jesus's life. Remember, he's on the way to die on the cross. This is a heavy moment. And the disciples are with him, but I think of Jesus as the loneliest man walking the face of the earth. His disciples were close to him in proximity, but had no idea what he was facing and what he was about to endure. The mood was somber. But the thing is, as Jesus received these children, I think these children were a refreshing source for Jesus to enjoy. We might think of ministering to the next generation as something that will fatigue and cost us, but hey, in the sober difficulties of life, God might use a child, a teenager, someone in a younger generation than you to encourage your heart, to revitalize your walk and help you see that things aren't as dire as are being publicly reported. But here's the second thing I want you to see. Number two, we should remember childlike people have the kingdom. We should remember childlike people have the kingdom. Notice what he said at the second half of verse 14. He said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Referencing this child, he said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. We have to remember that childlike people have the kingdom. Now, Jesus said it that way, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What does this mean? To answer this question, we must recall how the disciples felt about Jesus, the kingdom, and these children. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They'd already confessed that in Caesarea Philippi, which meant that they thought that he would pick up King David's reign and make Israel into a super nation. They thought the kingdom was for Israel only, meaning they were hoping for a right now and external, outward reign of Christ. And they thought these children were small and insignificant, merely kids in need of others to care for them, not worthy of the glory of the kingdom. But Jesus said that people like these children belonged in the kingdom. 
those who were considered lesser in their society. Children, those who were dependent on others. Children, Jesus considered them kingdom material. And isn't this the way that God normally operates? Consider Paul's words to the Corinthian church. He said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak in the world to shame the, wrong, the strong. What is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. During our midweek study through the book of Genesis, our church is currently discovering that God always looks for the less esteemed, those who are dependent on his blessings. In the societies found in the book of Genesis, the right of the firstborn was a big deal, but God always chose the younger rather than the firstborn. Seth instead of Cain, Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, Joseph instead of everyone. But then, even after God made his choice, he reached out to those firstborns. Once they were bumped from their positions of honor, he started to bless them. He blessed Hagar and Ishmael. He blessed Esau. He blessed Joseph's brothers. Once they were brought low, he had an access into their hearts. You see, on a global scale, I think God is doing something similar in our day. And many of the wealthiest nations of the earth have a long Christian history and foundation. The church used to be pivotal, central, and vibrant in various centuries throughout Europe and North America. But now, though the church still thrives in its own way in each one of those regions, God is doing an accelerated work right now in nations and on continents without the GDP of the more prosperous nations. In South America, the church is rapidly growing. In Africa, Christianity is taking over the continent. And throughout Asia, God is on the move. Perhaps we need these reminders. People like the disciples had to relearn the kingdom and maybe we need to relearn the kingdom as well. God is always looking for people like these children and saying, they, are, they can be part of my kingdom. In the book of Daniel, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It was a statue of a man that he saw in his dream. The head was made of gold, the chest of silver, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. Then this stone appeared, made without hands, and it struck the feet, crushed them, and destroyed the whole statue. And Nebuchadnezzar wondered, what does this dream mean? And God gave Daniel, the prophet, the interpretation. The statue represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the lesser kingdoms that would follow. The gold head was the Babylonian empire. The silver mid midsection was the Medo-Persian empire. The iron legs were the Greek empire and the feet mixed with iron and clay was the Roman empire. And the stone made without hands that crushed them all was Jesus's kingdom, Jesus's empire. And God said in Daniel 2 verse 44 that that kingdom would break in pieces 
all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. You know, we'd be tempted to think of Jesus's kingdom in the mode of those previous superpowers. Perhaps Jesus's kingdom should be powerful like Babylon or the Medes or Greece or Rome. And one day Jesus's kingdom will appear in full glory, more glorious than any of those previous kingdoms combined. But right now, Jesus's kingdom has come in humility as exemplified in this child. It's already here, Jesus's kingdom. It's internal and it's beautiful, but it's not yet outward and majestic. And God is looking for those that the world system despises. They, according to Jesus, are kingdom material. You see, the kingdom is not achieved by force or radical reforms, but by becoming like powerless children, people who know that their only real resource is God. They cling to God. They're dependent on God, desperate for his aid, like the children that Jesus saw that day. Dependence, helpless, unless God helps us. But if according to Jesus, people like these children receive the kingdom, what attribute specifically did Jesus admire in them? Here's my third and final point for the day. Number three, we should know that the kingdom is received with childlike faith. The kingdom is received with childlike faith. Let's read the last two verses again. He said, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, I've heard and read many contradictory interpretations of what Jesus meant when he said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Like a child. What does that mean? Scholars and pastors like to run wild with the child analogy that Jesus used. And I get it. I understand. It's tempting to talk up things like, children's innocence or spontaneity or eagerness or joy. It's fun to talk about how simple a child is. And children are amazing. They are gifts from God. But Jesus wasn't praising a bunch of virtues that he saw in children. He's talking about how to get into the kingdom. He's not praising them for their virtue. When Christian leaders said it like this recently, they said, there are two types of people in the world. Those who think that mankind is essentially good at the core and those who have toddlers. We, we just know Jesus isn't praising the innate goodness and righteousness of children. He wasn't saying that you'll get into the kingdom if you're sweet enough, joyful enough, or innocent enough. He wasn't preaching a works-based righteousness in any way. Instead, Jesus was making a comparison. Some people, he's saying, receive the kingdom. They receive it because they receive things like children receive things. The key word is receive. How do children receive things? Well, 
You could say it like this, they receive everything. It takes years for them to begin earning anything. Childhood is a season of receiving. You receive your home, your clothing, your food, your shelter. You receive love and education and help. The whole adult world exists to keep you alive. You have no money to offer. Your relationships aren't reciprocal. You understand that you will be cared for and that you are loved. You can only say thank you with your cuteness. So you simply receive. And people in the kingdom are like children in that they know the kingdom must be received. We cannot achieve the kingdom. It isn't given to us on merit. We can't earn our good standing with God. It's all of grace. It's all God's gift. Absolutely dependent, we receive and enjoy God's kingdom. Humbly, all because of and by God's grace, we must receive. Jesus said it this way in Matthew's gospel, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble, humble to receive. I grew up in a Christian home and I had an idyllic childhood. A time came, however, when I turned from God and I went my own way. You probably wouldn't be all that moved if I told you the sordid tales of my rebellion. We have at Calvary many more impressive pre-Christ stories around here. But for me, it was bad. I was given so much. I knew of the Lord's goodness and I had no excuse. Still, I ran from my Lord. And when my time came, when my number was up, the Holy Spirit chased me down and convinced me that the love of God was greater than the sin that I was clinging to. And I was broken. I had nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands could I bring to the Lord. And at that point, I learned the meaning of the following. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, there's that word, to be received by faith. And again, by faith, I received from the Lord. God's satisfaction and righteousness and love and acceptance, they were given to me in that moment because Jesus won those things for me and he won it for you. Like a child, receive what Christ has offered to you.